It's Tuesday, November 7th. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And I'm Trayvell Anderson, and this is What a Day. On today's show, Trump took the stand in the fraud case against him, and things did not go well. Plus, we'll tell you what you need to know about today's Supreme Court hearing on whether domestic abusers should have access to guns. But first, let's bring you a quick update on the Israel-Hamas war. We're recording this on Monday night at 9.30 Eastern, and at the moment, Israeli forces say they're closing in on Gaza City and will enter it soon. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. Meanwhile, Palestinian health officials said yesterday that more than 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza since Israel launched its offensive. That's after Hamas militants killed 1,400 people in Israel and kidnapped hundreds more one month ago. In reaction to that latest number, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had this to say to reporters in New York. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. I salute all those who continue their life-saving work despite the overwhelming challenges and risks. And the unfolding catastrophe makes the need for a humanitarian ceasefire more urgent with every passing hour. Okay, so we have the UN calling for a ceasefire now. That's what I heard from that clip. And we mentioned yesterday that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is basically avoiding the calls for a ceasefire. However, I guess there might be some new news on that front regardless. Yeah, It's not a ceasefire per se, but White House officials said that there might be, quote, tactical pauses on the table. So now we're starting to use all this jargon that means different things, even though they kind of sound the same. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked yesterday about pauses in the fighting so there could be windows where humanitarian aid is delivered to Gaza, as well as the possible release of hostages. However, that's like hours-long windows, not like indefinite ceasefire, right? Mm-hmm. And roughly 70% of Gaza's residents have fled their homes since the war began. And so important supplies like food and water and medicine are running really low. So if Israel agrees to pause, they'll open up an important opportunity for civilians to get necessary help, at least in theory. We heard yesterday about how sometimes there have been attacks during those pauses or at places that are supposed to be safe so people don't always take advantage of them. And Netanyahu told ABC News yesterday that Israel will not allow a ceasefire until Hamas releases all hostages. So that still seems not on the table, but it's good to hear the UN Secretary General calling for it, and we will bring you more as it develops. That is the latest on the war in the Middle East. Thanks for that, Josie. And now on to another quick update, this one on former President Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York, in which he took the stand yesterday. This is a sad... I think it's a very sad day for America. But anyway, this is a case that should have never been brought, and it's a case that should be immediately dismissed. Thank you. Thank you So that was Trump moments after exiting the courtroom. As a reminder, this is the case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James that accuses him and his business of inflating their net worth by billions of dollars in order to defraud banks and insurers. And as you might expect, Donald Trump did Donald Trump for literally four friggin' hours in the courtroom. The words that the New York Times used to describe his behavior on the stand tell the full story in my eyes. They called him, quote, belligerent and brash, unrepentant and verbose. 
Donald Trump? <laughs> Unrepented and verbose? <laughs> I have never been so sad to not have video from a court case, I have to say. Mm-hmm. What did our esteemed former president have to say for himself? Esteemed is a strong word. <laughs> but he called Attorney General Letitia James a political hack. One of his favorite words, like you mentioned. He loves hack. He loves hack, honey. He's kind of bringing it back for me, to be honest. <laughs> like, let's use hack again. That's like the one good thing this man has given us. <laughs> he also called the case, quote, a very unfair trial. And he even scolded the case's judge, Arthur Ingeron, saying, quote, he called me a fraud and he doesn't know anything about me. It's so funny because what he knows about Trump is just like all his financial records. It's like, it's actually all we need to know to know if you're a fraud. Literally. Trump, though, right, is, of course, referencing with that statement the fact that even before the case went to trial, Judge Ingeron ruled that Trump's financial statements were indeed filled with fraud. Trump said, quote, the fraud is on the court, not me. And the judge, right, has been fairly unfazed by all this commentary, perhaps just annoyed more than anything, even saying at one point, quote, you can attack me, you can do whatever you want, but answer the question. Yeah. And that's not what you want to hear when you're on stand. (laughs) Right. And you know, the funny thing is, when Trump did actually answer the questions presented to him, I'm not sure he actually did himself any favors. At one point, for example, he actually acknowledged his role in putting together the company's annual financial statements. He said, quote, I would look at them, I would see them, and I would maybe on occasion have some suggestions. Now, that sounds like an admission to me. Just like the one time this man decides to tell the truth. Right. But then he went on to sort of kind of minimize the importance of those very documents, basically saying that they're quote unquote worthless because banks paid very little attention to them. Trump also said that some of those bankers would be testifying in his defense in the trial. So I guess we have that to look forward to, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's probably news to them. So what happens next in this case? So his daughter Ivanka is set to take the stand on Wednesday. Her brothers Eric and Don Jr. already have. And after Ivanka, it's expected that Trump's defense lawyers will begin calling their own witnesses as early as Thursday. They've said that their projected schedule would have the case concluded by December 15th, which is a week before the trial is set to end. Now, in terms of what Trump's punishment could be, Attorney General James would like a few things, including Trump paying a a $250 million penalty and permanently banning him from doing real estate business in the state. No matter the punishment, though, this trial ending in mid to late December, I think is perfect timing to ensure all of the Trumps get a little coal in their stockings for Chris Mahana Kwanzaa, whichever of the above they celebrate. I can tell you it's not Kwanzaa. (laughs) Well, listen, you never know what they're doing at Mar-a-Lago. That's true. It is chaotic (laughs) in so many ways. Uh, If you know anything about a -a Mar-a-Lago Kwanzaa party, please (laughs) contact us immediately. I mean, I can't offer you money, but we will buy you dinner or something. 
Okay, thank you for that, Trayvell. Another story we're following could have implications for gun rights. Today, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in United States versus Rahimi, a case that could shape limitations on gun ownership in the future. This is the second major Second Amendment case that this court has taken, and it's shaping up to be even more consequential and much more contentious even than the first. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. Tell us a little bit about the case. The facts here are... A doozy. According to SCOTUS blog in 2019, Zaki Rahimi allegedly, quote, dragged his then-girlfriend back to his car when she tried to leave after an argument. She said he also pushed her into the car, causing her to hit her head on the dashboard. And then when he realized that someone had witnessed this, like, domestic violence incident, he allegedly fired a gun at the bystander. Mm. Do not recommend doing that. His then-girlfriend got a restraining order, which, among other things, prohibited him from having a gun, and he allegedly soon violated that restraining order and, over the next two months, was involved in five shootings, including one where he fired into the air after his friend's credit card was declined at a fast food restaurant. Oh, wow. Yeah. Eventually, he was arrested for violating his restraining order, and Rahimi and, more accurately, the activist gun rights organizations driving this litigation claim that the law banning him from having a gun was unconstitutional. Interesting. That's the beginning of how we got to where we are. All right. Scratching my head. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is a very high stakes case. Many of the gun rights ones end up being in this era of the court. What can we expect from them on this? Yeah, it's going to be pretty tough because even for people accused of domestic violence, Rahimi's behavior is on the extreme end, right? Like, he was involved in six shootings between the inciting incident for the restraining order and his subsequent arrest two months later. So it's a little difficult when you have a case like this to say, like, no, it's illegal to tell this guy he can't shoot at the fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound good. But this is also the most pro-gun rights court we've seen in a very, very, very long time. I mean, generations, right? So we're really going to have to see. The Supreme Court swears they don't care about PR. They only care about the Constitution. But it's a little hard for me to see how they are going to argue that it's, like, completely okay for people accused of abuse to have unfettered access to weapons because that's not what Thomas Jefferson wanted or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to make that kind of, like, originalism case. But the court has managed to subvert my expectations many times. <laughs> so I wouldn't put it past them. So the court is going to be looking for what they call a quote-unquote historic analog, basically whether or not there is anything in history similar to this restriction that they can use as a precedence of sorts. But as I understand it, you have some issues with that. I do have some issues with that. In part because, and as people have pointed out, this is really tricky Because for most of history, we didn't have restraining orders for domestic violence. Like, spousal abuse was historically accepted. It wasn't even until 1920 that domestic violence became illegal in all 50 states. Mm. So you can't really go back to the founders when the founders thought it was kind of okay to beat your wife. Mm -hmm. But that being said, like, while this analog argument is pretty absurd to me, there are points that Rahimi's making in this case or his lawyers are making that I think are important. Like, the Biden administration has said that this restriction only applies to the most dangerous of people. And obviously, this guy seems to be a bit of a loose cannon. But challengers argue that in actuality, that's not true. That this restriction applies to a whole swath of protective orders, including those where, quote, there was no finding that the subject of the order had actually made threats or been violent. In fact, many criminal defense organizations filed briefs in the case saying that the government tends to enact far too broad criminal laws and be overly punitive, something You may have noticed, I believe, and is part of the reason we have the biggest criminal justice system in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to trust that the Biden administration is going to draw 
the right line or that any government is going to draw the right line. Yeah, definitely another example of them trying to thread a needle of sorts on this issue and so many others. There's also some news about Rahimi himself. What did he have to say? Yeah, there's a fun fact about our boy Rahimi. He doesn't even want a gun anymore. In a handwritten letter from jail, he said that he wanted to, quote, stay away from all firearms and weapons and never be away from my family again. Hmm. I don't know how sincere this is, but whether or not this proves to be true, his name will forever be on a major Second Amendment case, regardless of which way the court goes on it. So that is what you need to know about this important case. Make sure to listen to the latest strict scrutiny, too, because they go even deeper on this case and they are great at it. And the justices will issue their decision by next summer, if not sooner. But that is the latest for now, and we will be back after some ads. What a day is brought to you by Carriuma. Here on WAD, Carriuma is our go-to sneakers because they're really comfortable, they go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. We've told y'all about them time and time again. You should believe us by now. Yeah, I famously wore mine to the Justin Bieber concert. I was on my feet the whole time. Mm. And guess what? Those feet did not hurt. I was very comfortable, and I danced my little heart out to him and to Jaden Smith. It was random, but it was fun. <laughs> last year, last year we collaborated with Karayuma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and now they have designed a second limited edition collaboration with us, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, they're not Taylor Swift level, but Pundit is there with a surfboard, so we love it. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. If you want a pair for yourself or the loved fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Therapy is great for, you know, you know that thing that just is like sitting on your shoulder, you can't get over it, and you just sometimes need somebody to talk through it with? Therapy can be helpful for that, you all, okay? You got to get it off your chest, you know? And you can do that with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash wad today to get 10% off your first month. That's 10% off your first month at betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash wad. Let's get to some headlines. Headlines. 
A jury yesterday found a Colorado police officer not guilty in the 2019 death of 23-year-old Elijah McLean. Aurora officer Nathan Woodyard was the first on the scene and put McLean in a neck hold that left him temporarily unconscious. Over the 15-day trial, state prosecutors argued that Woodyard's neck hold contributed to McLean's death. He is the second officer to be acquitted for their use of force in the killing. Two other officers were tried jointly beginning in September. Randy Rodima was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide and third-degree assault and will be sentenced in January. Jason Rosenblatt, on the other hand, was acquitted of all charges. The two paramedics who injected an overdose of ketamine into McLean after his arrest have also been indicted. Meanwhile, Woodyard remains suspended from the department without pay, pending the outcome of the trial. In 2021, the city of Aurora agreed to pay a $15 million settlement after McLean's family sued the Aurora Police Department and paramedics. Teachers in Portland, Oregon were back on the picket line yesterday after the district and its teachers union failed to reach a deal over the weekend. That means classes were canceled for a fourth day for about 45,000 students in the state's largest school district. We told you last week that teachers and other school staffers walked off the job last Wednesday to demand higher wages, more planning time, and caps on class sizes, among other things. And according to their union, the Portland Association of Education, the action is the first ever teacher strike in district history. The two sides have been negotiating for months and are more than $200 million apart in their proposals. Not a small amount. The union is asking for a salary increase of about 20% over three years, while the school district said that it can't afford the union's proposal. But during a news conference yesterday, some state legislators expressed discontent with that claim. Here's State Senator Elizabeth Steiner. It's frustrating. As others have mentioned, they've been in negotiations for the better part of a year. So when Superintendent Guerrero testified in front of the legislature that we should fund $10.3 billion, which we did, it feels a little disingenuous to have them come back and say, actually, we can't do it because you didn't give us enough money. Meanwhile, the district and the union were set to return to the bargaining table again yesterday. Now we turn back to Maui, where the Lahaina wildfire continues to take a mental toll on survivors of the disaster that left 99 people dead. Maui's director of mental health services told NBC News that the island's behavioral health care system has been overwhelmed in recent weeks. Providers are struggling to accommodate an increasing number of patients seeking counseling and trauma-informed care, and officials only expect that number to grow in the coming months as survivors of the disaster continue to heal. Local healthcare providers have reported an uptick in severe depression, trauma flashbacks, and even suicidal thoughts in recent weeks. Debbie Scott, a social worker and therapist on Maui, told NBC, quote, losing pets and losing every belonging, losing history, losing tradition has left souls pretty empty. This all comes amid the reopening of West Maui to tourism, a move that many locals have called premature in the island's recovery process. The wildfires, which erupted on August 8th of this year, have been deemed one of the deadliest in modern U.S. history. Switching gears now, if you or your little ones are consuming dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets or fruit pouches, listen up. Tyson Foods has recalled around 30,000 pounds of their fun nuggets out of an abundance of caution. That comes after some people found metal pieces in their breaded chicken nuggets. The recalled nuggets were produced at just one location back in September, but were shipped to distributors across nine states, including Tennessee, California, and Illinois. So far, the USDA said it's only received one report of a minor oral injury, but the agency is advising folks to toss the frozen nuggets for good or return them to where they were purchased. And separately, two more fruit puree pouches for kids are being recalled over possible lead contamination. 
In total, three companies have now issued recalls for their applesauce pouches. They include Schnucks Markets, Weiss Markets, and Wanabana. The FDA said people should not eat, sell, or serve the apple cinnamon fruit pouches and said that anyone who's consumed the purees should be tested for possible lead poisoning. Could you imagine your child is chewing on some nuggets and y'all discover some metal in your nuggets? I have to say my first thought was definitely in my house, I'm the person most likely to be eating the chicken nuggets. So I'm the most (laughs) likely one to get the metal, for being honest. (laughs) Cut it out, Josie. (laughs) And probably also the applesauce if we're being real. That just means this impacts more people than just the children. True. It's not just the kids. (laughs) And Gunnett is finally out of the woods. Hi, my name is Brian West, and here are 13 reasons why you should hire me. That is the voice of Brian West, the newly hired Taylor Swift beat reporter for the media company in his application for the job. The 35-year-old journalist from Arizona was selected from a wide pool of applicants, ranging from veteran hard news reporters, including at least one very established White House reporter, to very online Swifties who wanted to cover all things Taylor Swift. Now, West will be working out of the Tennesseans newsroom for USA Today and the company's over 200 local dailies. Gannett first announced the job opening in September, and it brought up mixed feelings. Some people worried about the position focused solely on the pop star when local news is suffering, and others were thrilled to see the innovation and creation of this new beat. And now, with the hiring complete, the controversy has taken on a new form— West is a self-proclaimed Swifty, which some critics are saying goes against journalistic ethics when it comes to remaining unbiased in his coverage. Josie, I know you have thoughts. I do have thoughts. I'm sure Brian West is a lovely person, but if someone writes in doing a video themed to the person that they're supposed to be covering's work... It might mean that they can't really be super objective on reporting on this person. You know, it's interesting because he does have your typical journalism background, right? In terms of credentials and places he's worked before. Yeah. I'm not really the one to be giving the whole unbiased objectivity in journalism point. Because I think objectivity is a machination of white supremacy. It's true. But in this case, it does seem like being an expressed fan of this person who you, in theory, would be doing these deep dives. Maybe you'd be investigating. Wasn't there a story about Taylor Swift's plane? Right. And, like, carbon emissions or something like that? Right. Like, if you're a fan of hers, you've got a photo of hers Is that a story that would be front of mind for you to tackle? I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. It's not personal against Brian. It's not. I just feel like this whole thing is kind of, it's a little dark. Yeah, it's not great. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. Last week marked the 15th anniversary of former President Obama's historic 2008 presidential win. Tommy, Dan, Favreau, and Alyssa Mastromonaco sat down with their old boss to get his thoughts on the 2008 election, the conflict in Gaza, and the future of democracy. The episode is out now. Head over to the Pod Save America feed to listen today. 
That's all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. And if you are into reading, What a Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Trayvell Anderson. And I'm Josie Duffy Rice. What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Our show's producer is Itzy Quintanilla, Raven Yamamoto, and Natalie Bettendorf are our associate producers. And our showrunner is Leo Duran. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. 